Hello. Artie Kornfeld, please. This is Artie Kornfeld, please. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? I am uh, doing okay. You know, I'm being I'm being me. It's very time consuming being me. Been <laughs> <laughs> um, that way since my first single came out in '56. Come on, <laughs> it never stopped. <laughs> and here you are. What time is your radio show on? Uh, is it 10 o'clock East Coast? Yeah, and it's a it's a good one because I wanted to show people. I'm tired of hearing because, you know, all my friends, are, you know, like Marty Ballin and Tom Constant and From the Dead. And, yeah, yeah. You know, like my guests and Marty Ballin. These are the guests I've had on and May Pang. And they all look at the music from those days like it was all pop, but they forget that's all that was. Exactly. FM radio jerks. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm one of those. Thank you very much. Oh, hey. Well, you had it, you know, I mean, you know, when I started, you know, more, I you know, and I don't forget, I did work for Roulette, too. I mean, and I Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Well, back then, I guess it was be the Murray the K and, and on down the line, right? Oh, it's What's Happening, Baby, and he sang the title. I wrote that and produced that with him. I used to listen to uh, Cousin Brucey on WABC. Oh, I got a funny Bruce story. Oh, do you? Tell me about it. I had told Bruce, and I told, uh, remember Dave Herman? He was at MMR, the PD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told Dave and, and Bruce, if there was a chance to have an, an, an announcer once in a while at Woodstock, I'll have you come up on stage. Well, Bruce shows up in like a silk suit, right? And comes up to me and says, okay, Artie, I'm ready to go. I said, you're ready to work 20 hours a day, Bruce? <laughs> I said, Bruce, this is not the kind of show where we need an announcer. <laughs> you know, we don't want Cousin Brucey, you know. At, uh, it, it, you're not a part of the Woodstock trip. You don't play music that's part of the Woodstock trip. Yeah. And you're not a part. So he got all uptight and didn't talk to me for five years. Really? The difference in people that love music is Dave Herman came, and I told Dave, and you know what he did? He became part of the crew and was moving amps the whole festival. Wow. It's yeah. like Cousin Brucey and Chip Monk. It's kind of like night and day. It's just kind of bizarre. Oh, yeah. You know, and it wasn't just, you know, it was whoever was on the mic at the time said, and now, you know, it wasn't one of those, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Let's, you know, let's this and that. It was, it was very organic. Yeah. You mentioned right at the outset of our conversation, you were uh, writing and performing 1956-57, Pied Piper. It was my that. first deal when I was signed. So y you became senior VP of Rock at Capitol in New York. First VP of Rock ever. Really? First time any label recognized that rock was a really way to sell records. So you were kind of firmly established in the biz. Uh, with well, By the time I was at Capitol, I already had 42 songs in the top 100 in Cashbox as a writer. That's incredible. Yeah, uh, and we're talking about everybody from Connie Francis to Minnie Riperton. You, you had a bit of a, a, a term at the legendary Brill Building. Oh, are you kidding? I was part of the Nevins, Curse and Screen Gems. I, I even write in my book. The book you're going to love the book. It's a killer. What is what is the book called? It's called The Pied Piper of Woodstock. The best thing. It's my You've Lost That Loving Feeling. It's my bridge over troubled waters. It goes back. It really starts when I, when I, and it says the road to Woodstock. It starts in North Carolina in 1953. And I wake up, and you know, it has pictures of me getting by mid and me and I playing for Charlotte Catholic High School, playing, you know, yeah. backer. It has that kind of, and then it, you know, it has those kind of pictures. And then it really starts, and I call it the, the seed of Woodstock. My dad had to be at the bus station at uh, 2 in the morning, and there was this big, drunken black guy there. And he, my dad, being the kind man he was, took him home. And in North Carolina, just, you know, just having a black person on the block was against the law almost. Incredible. When I woke up, there was Fats Domino. Fats Domino. at the kitchen table getting sober. Wow. With us for a couple of days. And my dad sobered him up and put him on a bus. 
because he didn't have any cash on him for some reason. And, and, I, and I couldn't believe that I met Fats Domino. So I got a job that week at 13 at the Charlotte Coliseum, and you had to carry the buckets selling soft drinks so I could see all the acts for free. <laughs> Excellent. I saw Buddy Holly, and I saw, you know? Yeah. I mean, I saw Carl Perkins, you know? I mean, I saw those people perform. And I didn't have to pay. In fact, I made money because I was selling soft drinks. A kid from Bensonhurst. Yeah. Rises through the ranks. Hey, you did... I, was, I was the president of my college class. You know, I did that. Oh, were you really? Yeah. Yeah, I was the president of the class of 64 at Adelphi University, but I left. and uh, That was really the sophomore because I left to go to American University where Cass and I used to sing in the snack bar. <laughs> yeah. That's where I met Cass. I met Cass, you know, when she was in college. Fan. And it wound up me being part of signing the spoonful. And I talk, I tell the story about the night we signed the spoonful when we went to see him at the Night Owl. Mm-hmm. It was just Koppelman, Ruben, and myself and our wives. And then it was real dark, and there was no one else. There was a spoonful on a five by five stage setting up, and Linda kept saying, "Boy, the drum is really cute." <laughs> she was saying. <laughs> and I looked to my left, and one foot from me is Bob Dylan. And I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> I'd never met Bob. I I'd met him in passing. Yeah. But I never. But he, there he was, one foot away from me, and next to him was Phil Spector. Holy cow! I knew, and I knew, I knew he always had a piece on him. Did you Did you speak to either either of them? Yeah, we spoke. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing was, I was in a state of shock the whole night that I was even sitting next to Bob Dylan. Wow, that's fantastic. I was a groupie. <laughs> fantastic. I was a groupie, and you know, and that's and the next day we sang the spoonful, and within two weeks, I went to my friend Philly, who owned Kama Sutra Buddha, and we had Magic Out, which was a demo, and everybody turned it down, and it went to number one. But to tell you the truth, it had to be bought to number one. Really? It had nothing to do with promotion in those days. I was just a writer and a producer. Yeah, those days, those days. I love those days. The Machiavellian days of music and rock and pop. And when I see those Brill Building articles that it mentions my name, I'm so... I'm, they, actually, I'm more proud sometimes in the Woodstock stuff, definitely. I read the uh, Vanity Fair article on uh, music in the Brill Building and the uh, people that uh, came and went, so fabs, really stunning stuff. And my friends still like Jerry Lieber's still a friend of mine, and I was so sad when Jerry Wexler died. Yeah. And there was one article that said the three most important people come out of the Brill Building that to add to the rock culture today with Donnie Kirshner, Artie Kornfeld, and Phil Spector. Isn't it bizarre uh, where Phil... But that's heavy company. Who's Artie Kornfeld anyway? Yeah, well, you're Artie Kornfeld. Like you said, it's <laughs> tough to be Artie Kornfeld. And I can't play golf anymore because of my back. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, you... you saw Granger's book came out? Yes. Yeah. I told you I had to go up there and, and travel with him. Did you? Yeah, and all of his friends... Well, where I swear, everybody had a belly like they drank. They they, they just drank a twelve pack of Bud. <laughs> but he was wearing a polyester sport jacket, yeah. and everybody had polyester slacks. And was wearing like red and orange golf shirts, and everybody had a wig or dyed hair. And all they kept saying about is how that they saw that they were at a, a meeting, and they met Sarah Palin. And it was the greatest moment of their life. <laughs> oh, God. You know, and there I am with my long gray hair, you know. Hey, what was uh, what was Michael Lang wearing when he uh, waltzed into your office after your secretary buzzed you? Same thing he's wearing today, you know? Yeah. The same, the same guy. He, 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 don't forget, he waltzed into my office and forget the whole thing about Miami Pop because he even asked me in my book, don't tell the truth about Miami Pop because that's his big claim to what he did. 
Really? The past, and you know, my resume is five pages long. I know, it's impressive, good God. It's all true. I mean, every, even the chart numbers are true. So the reason you saw Michael Lang was because he came from your neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, I told myself, his story is not in the book. I mean, I, lo- I love Michael, I don't like Michael. His business ethics is so head shop owner. He was a head shop owner from Miami whose shop was busted. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I took an immediate liking to Michael because, you know, because I and I still I love Michael. I don't like Michael. I'm a very ethical business person. I've never been sued. I never had to sue anybody. Right. Except for getting a couple of guys buzzed out. I never paid anybody off. I mean, I gave people Survivor for free when I was managing them. Yeah. You know. So you become friends with this uh, charismatic young hip underground uh, kind of guy from uh, Bensonhurst, and the ball. Just about a month before, or no. A couple of years before, John Sebastian gave me my first joint, because I didn't even smoke a joint until I was 23. Sebastian gave you a joint? You don't drink and you don't smoke, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sebastian gave me a joint in the office, and I fell in love with pot. So, you know, and Michael had just come from Florida, so he had this incredible blonde Colombian, which I had never even heard of. Nice. And uh, it made me fall in love with him. <laughs> Not that it was the thing, because I had Linda and Jamie, and I lived in Sutton Place, and I was already vice president of Capitol, and yeah. you know, and I ran the East Coast, and it was like. Uh, but what I did is, you know, I, you know, like you know, the things I did that you don't get credit for is like I'm the guy who stood up at the meeting at Capitol and said, I said, look, I have the wind in the willows with Debbie Harry. You know, I think Debbie's going to be something someday. Yeah, I just did it because it's about the wind in the willows and the Hobbit, and I did it for not commercial reasons. It's a, it's a statement. It's mm-hmm. not supposed to sell records. And we're spending a fortune. Take $200,000 out of my budget and put it on the weight by the man, because I signed the man. I said, put it on, and they were friends of mine, and so was Albert Grossman. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, take another 200000 and put it on the games people play because we have two records sitting there that are number one records and we're not promoting them. And I said, it's the weight in the games people play. And I called it right. Fascinating. Yeah, I put my job on the line. I said, if they don't go number one, I'll resign. And I still had three and a half years on my contract. And uh, and with that remaining uh, time on your contract, you're uh, friends with Michael, and then you start talking about this idea. Now, tell me... Is no, this... we didn't start talking about it. It was all this, that one night. Well, how did this idea come up? Is it really true that it was late at night, you smoked a joint? I, I had a... I was... I lived in the penthouse on 56 and 1st, right off Sutton Place. Okay. For that... <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm, you know, I, I, you know, I sold ice cream. I, you know, I, I did everything to make to make a, make some money. Yeah, uh, yeah. Michael uh, and I, he's hanging out with me. Has no bread. Uh, he has a band that's terrible. But Garland Jeffries was in the band, who became John Lennon's friend and had an album, I think, on Arista. Yes. And uh, I like Garland, so I took him into the Capitol Studio. It was, a, if I remember, there was a lot of alcohol being passed around, and the session was a, a bust. And the van was bad, but I gave him a $5,000 advance, so Michael would have some money. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened was uh, we, uh, we started hanging out. And he, he had a place he used to stay in Woodstock where his girlfriend and friends from the Grove lived. So, so what happened was we're, we're, we used to play bumper pool every night. So 3 in the morning, that would be Michael and I in my den looking out over the whole city, because on the 39th floor back in 1967, you saw over everything. There was no other, that was the biggest apartment building. Nice view. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, screw all this stuff. You know that is? 
That's actually Artie Kaplan, and Artie Kaplan actually played that sax at the beginning of Locomotion. Oh, really? And he also played the solo on Hey Girl with Freddie. He was the exclusive contractor for Screen Gems. So all the Goffin and King, Man and Wild stuff that you heard, <laughs> the cookies and stuff, Artie was a contractor. Wow. He became the number one contractor in the history of the Musicians Union. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he's 72. Wow. You know, so it's like... Uh, you know, he even booked the, you know, when you had a demo, you said, well, I'll, I'll get back to Michael. Okay. Michael. So Michael um, Michael says to me, because he didn't know, he said, Artie, you're tainted. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't go to the Fillmore. I said, Michael, I've been running, I've already run, at this point, I had already run Roulette. I'd already run Mercury. I already toured and had a hit record. And I already played for 10,000 people a night for 30 nights on the Sunny and Cher tour. Yeah. And I said, Michael. I've been a songwriter and a producer since 1956. When at 16, my first deal, I said, I don't listen to music the way you do. And also at Capitol, you don't understand. I have 100 acts that I have to approve their budgets. I have to help make the decisions on the singles. And I also have their families in mind. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, are they going to survive? I said, I have a lot of responsibility, and it doesn't give me the time when I'm not in the studio to go to the Fillmore and hear the new groups because I already had Quicksilver, I already had uh, Spirit, I had signed, you know, so I was into that. That's why they hired me wow. in the first place. And and he said, well, you don't go, you know, you're tainted. You don't want to see music anymore. And then I said to him, I said, well, you know, it'd be great. What if we took a Broadway theater and just had great a great act at every weekend, kept it going on as long as we could for free. And then, and then, uh, and then Michael said, well, I was going to work on this thing. And uh, he said, yeah, what we do is we, even though we, there's no room, we'd call it Woodstock because Dylan's there, the band's there, Joplin was living there, Richie Havens was living there, everybody was living there. Yeah. So we'll call it Woodstock, even if it's in Philadelphia. <laughs> so we're going to call it Woodstock. And then Linda said, well, why don't you take it, why don't you take it to a field? Take it to the country. Take it out of a theater and go to a field. Cool. And, and then I said, I wonder how many people would show up. And Michael said, 50,000. And I said, 100. And Linda said that night, 500,000. And that's exactly, that was the conception that night. 